VC Projects Podcast, and today my guest is Jane DeFogg, who's an American artist who looks through the lens of humanity at civilizations, both past and present, and views time as threads that connect all people. His work is a visual language that is informed by the spiritualism of abstraction and the realism of the old masters. These two ideas are usually seen as separate, but DeFogg fuses them seamlessly into works that transcend and become testaments to thoughts and inform us of who we are in the 21st century. Shane, thank you so much for joining us. We're in Hollywood in LA. We're in Hollywood and it's warm out even though it's November 1st. It's like 85 degrees, but this is Southern California, so you get what you pay for. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, and so we're, we're, down here on Western Avenue, and um, your studio, my my space, El yeah. Pino, and um, we are recording another podcast, but this one is about the huge um, project that you've been working on um, for the Bovalo Museum. Correct. At the still point of the turning world, Strangers in Time. 21 paintings that I just finished. Um, took six months, 10 to 12 hours a day, painting seven days a week. Yeah, pretty much, you know, it's, uh, I feel depleted. There's not much left in me. I have to uh, re- restock my reservoirs, per yeah. se. But yeah, it was... Um, we well, don't usually paint to that marathon. No, I don't. And, uh, but... As you know, we, you know, I went to Venice in March, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and we looked at different spaces, and then we chose the Bovalo Museum for a number of reasons. And it's a beautiful, uh, uh, amazing historical building, and has these two rooms in it. And in one room is a Tintoretto painting, mm-hmm. Paradiso. It's a study for Paradiso, and it's bolted to the back wall, so we can't remove the painting. So we have to figure out how we're going to deal with that, but. Um, I made, and the painting is 10 feet long, so I made a painting that's 9 feet long, 7 feet tall, that will go in front of the painting. <coughs> Excuse me, how far in front, of, we're not sure yet. There's meetings happening next couple of days in Venice about all this. And I'm thinking maybe it could even be suspended from the ceiling. Uh-huh. The museum will, and the ceilings are 14 feet tall. <coughs> Excuse me, <clears throat> and people are—they want people to be able to walk around my painting to still see the Tintoretto, because the museum gets—I don't know—hundreds of thousands of, of visitors all the time. Um, so it's a big part of, of their identity. So I don't want to take away from that. But um, so there's twelve. How many paintings? First room, nine paintings in the first room. And they're all the still points, mm-hmm. um, the thin lines that just keep overlapping each other and overlapping until it's almost like a syncopated rhythm, which is what we were, I just chose the music, by the way, that we started with, which is called Channels and Winds, Ravi Shankar and Philip Glass. Um, and it's very much about that kind of painting and, and it's layered with imagery it's layered with colors and they are all speaking to each other but yet individually Mm -hmm. which is not an easy task 
And then in the second room, it goes into a different body of work called neither flesh nor fleshless. And all three, so the first room is um, only through time, time is conquered. There's one painting with that title. Then there's eight paintings titled um, um, Reach Into the Silence. And then you walk into the second room and there's 12 paintings titled um, Neither Flesh Nor Fleshless. And there's, you know, what I was thinking is that when you walk into the first room, I wanted it to be you're walking into the spirit world. Mm, yeah. Almost the essence of, of a person's own energy source, their own, the essence of them. Mm-hmm. And it's the essence of me. And it's a, an accumulation of memories um, of times and places throughout my life that really become a bit of a self-portrait, but as we've been writing, you've been writing this essay um, for the catalog, you know, it's not a self-portrait that is my face or my hair or anything like that. It's, it's, I don't even know how to describe it. It's not a psychological, it's not necessarily spiritual, it's mm-hmm. an imprint almost. Yeah, well, I think it's a combination of physical and spiritual um it's your evidence yeah it's your tracings it's it's more than tracings it's certainly it's certainly your existence you know Mm -hmm. i mean a writer would would write all day all night you know volumes and volumes you're a painter so you painted you know for Mm -hmm. six months straight and the still points are really almost like a form of writing for mm-hmm. me, very yeah. much, and I mean the other ones too because they're very calligraphic. <clears throat> but the calligraphy is based on my own physicality, uh-huh. and hence I decided to do that for the second room, neither flesh nor fleshless. And again, T.S. Eliot, you know, he's constantly threading a needle between two ideas. And one almost negates the other and vice versa, but one could not exist without the other. Mm-hmm. And together they become an idea that is itself, mm-hmm. which is what I think art is. You know, I don't, I think art becomes, a lot of people feel that, well, somebody can draw really well or that's a really great idea and blah, blah, blah. And that, that is in itself art, but oftentimes it's, it's an illustration of an idea. Yeah. And then art is the idea itself. And when you're standing in front of a great work of art, I don't care from what period, I don't care what genre, it hits you. There's no other explanation for it. Right. It just is. Yeah, I was thinking it, it's an experience that transports you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, yeah. Um, so that's what I've been working on, these 21 paintings. And I had, while I was there um, in the space, I walked it off, you know, how many square feet each room was and how many paintings would fit into each room. I literally walked it off. And I knew right then how many paintings and what sizes they were going to be. 
and I was already thinking about the imagery that I wanted and the experience that I wanted for the audience to have. So when they walk in, they come up the stairs and they walk in, it's going to be these very pale still point paintings. And you're going to have to stand there quietly for a few minutes and let your senses adjust to the silence that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Then as you begin to move down the room towards the big painting, the colors become richer mm -hmm. and more saturated until you reach the biggest painting, mm -hmm. <clears throat> which is, and I think in that space, it's gonna be quite overwhelming. Yeah, I think having experienced those paintings in a space in your studio there, um, in the viewing room, I think it's safe to say it, at least my impression is that that will be a successful feat because the paintings are large. They they take on the present, like they're they're equal in, in your own presence. And there's a group of them. And, and the way that I experienced it was walking in and it was like these pillars or these these this sort of presence and I, I noted in, in my notes that it was almost like a Gregorian chant or a yeah. Tibetan monk or something of this group of voices <clears throat> that together they, they had this vocality, but independently mm -hmm. there was something. So I, I feel like there's a really strong presence that the Thank viewer you. will experience, even if there's you know, many people in the room. <clears throat> Thank you. And I was reading your essay that you've been writing, and I love that when you compared it to Gregorian chants. Um, and there's a certain, you know, I don't, I don't understand Latin, and I think Gregorian chants are in Latin, but there's a resonance within the sound of their voices, you know, that moves within us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as I was working on those paintings, that's what was happening to me. Mm, wow. So when you peg that, I was like, oh, good, good. You know, because that's not something I necessarily told you. No. That I recall. But the way I got there was through the texture, which the texture, um, and I also kind of compared them to late Monet paintings. Mm. Um, but there's like this invisible texture because of the way that you painted the lines. And then there's this incredible light, like some of the other paintings that you've done of the light on the water in Venice, mm -hmm. where there's this sort of, they're not veils, but this shimmering of light. And so for me, I know that it, again, in my notes, I, I compared it to like, if I was standing in front of um, those those caves, you know, with with all of the rocks like amethyst or something like that, mm -hmm. like these shining mm. um, organic lights, but not light, but like something that had a medium and a mm -hmm. vibration, and, and like they just sort of call to you, you mm -hmm. know. I mean, and and for me, they were art because. I had that immediate experience, and I sat down very quietly to to listen to them. 
And for the listeners, by the way, uh, Victoria came to the ranch, and which is where all the paintings have been made, and I chose to make them there because of the, number one, the space, but also the quiet that I have there, as opposed to Los Angeles. And and I, she would just disappear. And I thought, oh, I wonder where she is. And then she'd just be out in this one of the studios sitting there taking notes and making drawings of the paintings, which I found fascinating. But I will say about the, the color choices of those paintings reached into the silence, I was really thinking a lot about my memories of the architecture okay. of Venice. Uh-huh. The stone, the the Venetian reds that have faded, uh-huh. um, the ochres that have faded, that kind of white cement color, you know, and some of the facades, uh-huh. the marble, the grays of the cement. Um, those are the colors that I've, and then occasionally there's there's like an aqua green yeah. in there, or there's yeah. a pale blue in there. Yeah. Um, and then as it goes down into the room, the colors become more saturated as my memory of Venice, like throughout different times of the day or different times of the year that I've been there, the colors, and like in the wintertime, it's very much those colors when you first walk in. And then as you move down the room, it comes very becomes very much about the springtime and then the summer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. There's, a, there's a seasonal progression that mm-hmm. you walk through. <clears throat> and how the light reflects off off the water mm-hmm. also, you know, in some of those side canals. And not so much a Grand Canal because there's a lot of boats. Yeah. So you got a lot of movement, but yeah. <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> I got a fighting a cold. But the other, you know, the sunset and then the, the blues and the greens and the and the water and and the way they refract light mm-hmm. and as a um, a boat goes by and the waves that it creates and how those waves create these caps that almost like a dark line that gets uh-huh. that's dividing the color yeah so those things were all going through my mind as I was making those paintings I mean it is sort of a site-specific installation for sure but I mean and because the building, the Bovlo, because it's the Bovlo means a snail, and the staircase, and mm-hmm. you know, for any listener, after you listen to this, um, you know, go go Google like Bovlo Museum, and you'll see. So it, my, by the way, it's B O V O L O. Yeah, so you'll see what we're talking about. But um, I mean, it's interesting that you felt you had an intuitive feeling to sort of go with the space don't go against the space but go with the movement of the space the movement of the city mm-hmm. and not be of contrast mm-hmm. yeah and I I very much like that you know I even at my ranch I don't there's all these you know pre-existing buildings I don't try to tear them down or I try my thoughts are what can I do with this structure Mm-hmm. How can I incorporate this into my life, mm-hmm. into my being? And the same is true with these paintings. How can I incorporate my work into that architecture, into that history 
of, of Venice and the history of that museum mm -hmm. and the fact that there's this Tintoretto painting. And I actually printed out a picture of the Tintoretto and pinned it to the wall and I looked at it online and there's a lot of yellow ochres in it. There's some beautiful blue tones, um, some red tones, there's some gray tones. And all those colors are in only through time, time is conquered. Right, right, yeah. That, you know. So that was my next question. Um, I mean, we could talk about Regents of the Silence paintings for many hours. There's so much to, to touch on, but moving into Only Through Time is Time Conquered, and you took some photographs of the progression of it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's of the same sort of oak, but it's a completely different animal. And how, how do you want to describe that? <clears throat> it is, and it's, you know, the other paintings, Reach Into the Silence, by the way, are six feet tall and five feet wide. Um, only Through Time, Time is Conquered is seven feet tall and nine feet wide. So it's a much, much bigger painting. And it requires a lot more of me physically. Yeah. There, it was a hard painting to work on especially when I'm work using these little tiny brushes. Oh my gosh. And I'm doing these sweeping circular motions with my arm and intersecting these lines. And then there was a few times throughout the painting I, I didn't know if I could pull it off or not, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. And it was so much bigger than me, bigger than what I thought maybe I was even capable of doing. Not just physically bigger than me, but fit what I could as an artist and and I you know I had these moments of pangs going on it's like oh my god did I set myself up for failure yeah um, and then I, I would just I move it to another room mm -hmm. and, you know I moved that painting back and forth between two studio spaces on the ranch I think three times because I get to a point where I couldn't see it anymore so then it would take me and a, a, my friend, um, we'd have to lift this thing and walk it into the next building. Um, and then I would see it fresh for a little while. Yeah. And then I turned it upside down. I stood it on its end yeah. both ways. Um, any way that I could to try to see, to see it, to let it communicate with me. And this isn't like, I mean, so, I think you worked on it through the entire time. I did. And you worked on Full a six lot months of these paintings. Um, throughout the time. Yeah, and this one you really, I remember <clears throat> you, you know, telling me a little bit about it, but what was, what was so, you know, complex about it? Was it the color? Was it the line? Was it just the beast of it? Uh, it is about time. <coughs> it's about, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it is really about our experience of time and your time with it. And It was, you know, and it's interesting because this um, Tintoretto painting is behind it and the, the painting is titled Paradiso, yeah. Paradise. And so, you know, people think of paradise as, you know, it's heaven. And heaven is a place without time. And so that you have this, you're suspended in time in a perfect state of being. I'm not sure that's paradise, but um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's interesting to me that that is something that was 
how people thought and people still think of paradise, that you get to live forever. And so what it means is that you're living without time. Mm -hmm. Time doesn't exist anymore. So therefore, if time doesn't exist, your body doesn't decay. And supposedly, if time doesn't exist, you don't have a soul. Well, there's that too. That's a whole other rabbit hole. But, um, but you know what I mean? And so for me, paradise is like, well, so I'm going to be stuck like this for eternity? Well, we can't even understand eternity because eternity is, is the absence of time. Uh-huh. And all we know is time. Because we are living in these bodies that, you know, we measure time by our own mortality and the mortality of those that we love and that uh-huh. we care about. Uh-huh. That's how we measure time. And yeah, we, we have watches, but that, you know, it really doesn't play into it so much as we watch our bodies start to break down and decay and you know, our parents and then it happens to us and. Um, you know, I wake up in the morning, I got all kinds of aches and pains I didn't have 20 years ago, mm-hmm. but that's the byproduct of time. Yeah. And, and gravity, you know, and I won't go into Einstein's theories, but, um, um, so it occurred to me that wouldn't it be interesting to use the palette of Tintoretto to make this painting saying that only through time, time is conquered, you know, which is a very abstract idea. So only through time can we conquer time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So only only it's almost like only through fire can we can we put out a fire. Mm-hmm. And the colors that he was using that I started employing in this painting were basically primary colors and then some secondary colors. So it wasn't a confined palette like the other paintings were. You're talking about he, you meaning Tintoretto. Tintoretto, yeah. yeah. So he used some very primary colors in that okay. painting, uh-huh. which I found interesting, but I would never have thought of that and had I not made this my painting. You know, well, so I really start looking closely at it. But, th- but then you've made other paintings based on the golden ratio, so mm-hmm. I'm kind of not surprised. Yeah. But it was, um, I'm, you know, I was still using the same size brush for a painting that's twice the size. Yeah. So that suddenly required almost like four times the number of lines to fill in that space uh-huh. to have the same effect yeah. that I was after. And you really didn't know what you were after because you I didn't, didn't plan it. I never know. Yeah. I don't know until I see it. Uh-huh. And that's, that's the... That's the dance, you know, that I sign up for. Um, and always, you know, a third the way, half the way through, I start realizing that I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And then I don't panic anymore. I used to panic. I don't panic anymore because I know it's part of the process. And so I just stop and I go for a walk. I go do something else or I'll switch to another painting. Um, and knowing that at some point in time where my psyche is and where the painting is will reconnect mm-hmm. and when that happens I can move forward uh-huh. but until that happens I don't move forward I just move to a different painting 
So if I'm working on 21 paintings, I have lots of opportunities to keep going back and forth between different paintings, which is what I was doing. Well, you don't have any assistance. You're dealing with the consistency of your thought and concentration, because we were talking about that earlier, like you finish them, like how do you feel? And, you know, because you, you put so much intention to create those paintings by, you had a deadline. Yes. I had a deadline because then everything had to be photographed. Uh -huh. And for those out there that don't, maybe not aware of how this all works, so yeah, the, the show opens in April, but that's your end game. And that's when everything's hanging on the walls. So then you have to start working backwards from that. And let's say it's gonna take at least a month for travel. Mm -hmm. And then let's say it's gonna take two weeks, maybe three weeks to get them through customs, to get everything, the big paintings restretched, framed, hung. That's at least three weeks, right? So now yeah. we're, now we're at the, um, the end of March. And then everything, the big ones that have to be unstretched, they have to, everything has to be created. So that's another month and a half. And so everything then has to be brought to LA from my ranch. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so now we're at the beginning, uh, now we're at, let's see, February, March, we're in the middle of March. So, but prior to that, everything has to be photographed and color corrected, and then all those images have to go to the designer for the catalog, uh -huh. who's in Paris, as they start to map out what this catalog's gonna look like. And, and then, you know, as you know, you and I have been having to compile imagery mm -hmm. of me, of studio shots, so and so forth, to tell the story for the catalog, how this is all going to read right. visually. Yeah. So the and and you know the catalog is probably a three month design period, mm -hmm. and then once everybody signs off, then it goes to the printers, I believe, which is in Italy, and that's going to be another month. Mm -hmm. So the paintings all had to be finished, ladies mm -hmm. and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, the beginning of October. Yeah. Because there's all these other things that have to follow. So that was my deadline. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the fact that there's um, uh, Felix calling me. Um, I'll call him back. That you know everything has to be shipped out. That's down the road. You know, and so there's a lot of moving parts to all this. So all these things, of course, are on my mind. Yeah. As I'm making these paintings, yeah. as I'm looking at the calendar. Yeah. And like. And you then know. you're trying to be in the moment and to be, you know, true to yourself and go in there and, and make the paintings as art, not just completing a task for an right. exhibition. Right. And then, by the way, during the summertime, my AC went out in my studio, which meant that I had to, I, had, I was out there in my studio at 530 in the morning before it started getting hot. Mm -hmm. I had to start early. Then I had fans in there so I could work from like 5.30 in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon, at which point it got too hot. Yeah. Just too hot. I couldn't, couldn't do it anymore. Um, <clears throat> and then I go do work on some other things. But um, it, then I got my AC fixed. Then we have that heat wave, you know, 110 degrees or whatever. I'm sorry. No AC is going to touch that. Yeah. It doesn't work. 
Uh, but yeah, I was starting, you know, five five thirty in the morning. Yeah, that was you during were just, summer. Feels like you were just put through so many different tests in the making of of that, you know, those three bodies of work. Um, yes. Let's talk about the other the other group, um, okay. neither flesh nor fleshless. Okay. And. Um, Would you like to read me yeah. or read a quote? Yeah, I'd love for you to read a quote. Okay, so here's the book, Four Quartets, T.S. Eliot, which I've been reading on and off for 30 plus years, and I listen to it occasionally. Um, and I get every time I get re-inspired, um, I scribble down things that pop out to me from as I'm listening to it. On uh, Alex Guinness does a great reading of it on YouTube. Anybody can access and I scribble down things on my studio wall because I can never find a piece of paper in my studio, believe it or not. So anyway, this, here's the part. It says, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered. Neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point. So what did that, that's sort of the inspirational passage that well, kept you? kept me going the whole time at the still point of the turning world, and I started, I really started thinking about that many, many, many years ago, and of course I'm a visual person. Uh-huh. So for me, the still point of the turning world is almost like a hurricane. There's the eye of the hurricane or the eye of the tornado. Mm-hmm. So there's a still point. Even though everything's zipping around it, there's a center. There's a still point. And um, 19, what year was it? 2009. I, at that time, was part of the neighborhood council for downtown L.A. And I was sitting in on this meeting <coughs> about somebody wanting a liquor license for the restaurant and I'm sitting there listening to the arguments pro and con and I I've started doodling and I thought what am I doing here this is not the purpose of my life this is not who I am this is crazy there's other people that are much better suited for this job than me Um, you know I was nominated and got elected for this but I don't like it so I need to get out of it it's not a fit for me. And I happened to look down and saw this doodle I was making, and I realized it was a still point. Wow. And then, and I was kind of at a crossroads about, I've been doing these pattern paintings for quite some time, over 10 years, I think. And I, I felt like I had sort of run out of road with that, um, those images, and I needed to make a sharp left turn and figure out what else was out there, you know, that I could explore, that I could call mine. Mm -hmm. And so that suddenly this sketch was it. And I knew that was the beginning of a new series of paintings. Um, So I did, I started making these paintings and it was a show that I had at Leslie Sachs Gallery, I think in 2009. Um, and the show was very successful and it got well received and I made these paintings for two years and then it kind of morphed into the Geneva de Benci series uh-huh. 
and then some other few here and there and then I started dreaming about the still points again and I felt I, there was something more to say with them. So I stretched up a big canvas at the ranch and um, started that gray one mm -hmm. that recently left. Um, and I realized that it was tapping into something that I was really, really, really interested in and that it was something that my soul needed. Yeah. Um, and so it just kept going and going mm -hmm. and going. Mm -hmm. Other things kept popping up like Superiority and, and things like that, but the still points were still there. Mm -hmm. And originally I was working at them, working on them only at the ranch, not in LA. Because I didn't want anybody to know I was working on them. And I, I felt like I needed that sort of safety with them, you know? Um, so anyway, they've just kept progressing and progressing and then I realized that there's so much more to this poem and that why can't I take a stanza like neither flesh nor fleshless and that becomes its own body of work. Yeah. Just that idea, that idea is enough mm -hmm. to explore yeah. or reach into the silence. That's enough to explore. And these, you know, reach into the silence. I mean, what does that look like? What does that feel like? Right. What does neither flesh nor fleshless feel like? What does it even mean? What does it even mean? It means a moment of non of, of everything and nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, we're talking about infinity. Uh -huh. We're talking about nothing. And it's the two opposites that make up the whole, and we are the whole. But it's these two things that make us up. They, they cannot exist independently. So we are the summation. And I think that's a big part of what this poem is about. Mm -hmm. And that summation is that we have to learn how to be in the moment. Because we're always about the past, we're always about the future. And this is what T.S. Eliot keeps talking about. There is no past. Don't call it fixity. Uh -huh. You know? No, 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 no. It's neither flesh nor fleshless. If you're fleshless, then you don't exist. If you're flesh, then you exist. So you're, it's neither one. Mm -hmm. It's a state of mind. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So, no, it's really good. So let's talk about what these paintings ended up looking like. They're different sizes. There's different color palettes. And they're not thin um, lines, they're more um, veils of light and ribbons, but they're different. They're, they're different very figurative. Than, they're different than some of the other paintings <clears throat> mm -hmm. that you've done. Um, they are different. Um, I didn't want them to to be an extension of Amorphite or Superior or, or any of that. But I am still me, and it's still my hand holding a brush, and it's still me moving this brush yeah. across the canvas. So that's always a conundrum, you know, how do I undo what I do? Yeah. And still remain true to myself. And I purposefully chose some really shoddy brushes that I then screwed together with a piece of wood, like two or three of them. And the bristles were kind of spread out and they weren't smooth or anything like that. 
So they almost made like these scratch marks uh-huh. of paint across the surface. And those scratch marks were like, oh, I can still see through them. They're not a physical object. They're a moment of either becoming or going away. And which to me related to the title, Neither Flesh Nor Fleshless. So I wanted to keep that duality present um, with the brush stroke. And then, um, you know, and looking at the old Renaissance paintings and, and, you know, the Mona Lisa, for instance, she has this black veil over her forehead. And it wasn't until it was properly clean that you could even see it or they took special photographs. But it's this beautiful black veil that covers the very top of her forehead. And that was used a lot in Renaissance paintings and these thin veils that are almost invisible. And for me, they represent sort of, yes, it's transparent, but it's also this sort of, it's a fragile moment of life. Mm -hmm. And it's really not, that veil is not protecting anything, Uh you know? And so it's it's a very odd moment, and so I I decided to start painting those veils, very similar to how Leonardo would play with that, um, and he was so his brushstroke was so beautiful and it was so refined. Very few artists, you know, have accomplished that in that way that he did, and you know, and he used his fingers a lot to get this perfect blending. Um, and they can still see his find his, his fingerprints in these paintings on the surfaces of them. Wow. Which is one way that they can identify them. Yeah. But <clears throat> um, so I decided to I really wanted that to be a part of my vocabulary. So as I was crossing one line into the next with these thin veils and they were intersecting each other, suddenly I started looking at it as almost a, a new form of cubism because I was dealing with time and space in a different way. And there was no solid reality on any front. There are multiple moments that are passing through each other. Wow. So they're neither flesh nor fleshless. Yeah. So that in, in every instance, the title guided me, instructed uh-huh. me on how to make these paintings. So do you, do you think that spirituality or religion has any space in any of this? Absolutely, sure. Because, I mean, spirituality is, is our attempt to understand the, understand the incomprehensible. You know, we're trying to make sense of the universe and our place within it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're trying to make sense of why we are here. And you know, there's all these things happening around the world now, these bombings and, you mm-hmm. know, and, and human beings turning on other human beings and in the name of a religion or in right. the name of... Yeah. So if it was take away the religion, I think spirituality would be a much healthier approach mm-hmm. to understanding our place on this planet. But when you start adding 
religious tones about what's right and what's wrong, and therefore I'm right because this is what I believe, and that means that you're wrong, um, then we have problems, mm -hmm. you know, all the way around. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on for thousands of years, as we know. So I do think that spirituality, I think these paintings are very spiritual. I don't want them to be religious in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. I really don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want them to speak to all human beings around the world. I want every human being, I want them to be open enough and to be speaking of its own language that is tapping into, you know, Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious or subconscious, and maybe that's what they're tapping into. Maybe I'm tapping into it. And that's what I'm bringing forth as a reminder that we all have, all have a, mm -hmm. a place of origin. Yeah, I mean, you talk about, well, a couple things. You talk about kind of being like a conduit, but then also as me being a viewer, observer of your entire process, I see you, you know, I see you at the art store, you know, buying the canvas, you know, loose mm -hmm. canvas, rolls of it, <clears throat> buying your paint, mm -hmm. you know. Which is like, I'm, a, I'm like a kid in a candy store, by the way. Yeah, and I'm just like, I'm just smiling because these are just materials. And so for me, you're an alchemist. You're, you're turning these, these simple objects into this incredible, profound experience that you transport yourself through and it attaches all your history. There's the conversation with Elliot that you have ongoing in your own mind. Mm -hmm. And then as the viewer, you're looking at, at least in my, in my point of view, there's this vibration of all of that like you're looking at an old master painting that's authenticated and you know this is like a rembrandt or a vermeer or a, you know whatever mm -hmm. but um and so you know this is something it's like there's stars there's you know this there's this experience that's telling you like you don't know what this is but this is important and open your heart and receive it. Hmm. I like that. Thank you. So. Thank you. I, you know, I've been so close to these things and <clears throat> in the trenches with them. <coughs> and, and um, you know, when we were photographing them a week and a half ago, mm -hmm. and you know, we had a week set aside to photograph them, and I'm still working on the last three paintings of reaching to the silence they were done yet mm -hmm. and so when Laura yeah. you know when Laura was there filming in one studio I was painting in the other studio mm -hmm. um, and then the finally the last day you know I'm out there at five o'clock in the morning trying to pull put some the last breath of life into this last painting and the last, took, I worked on about an hour and a half, two hours, and all of a sudden there it was. So how do you do that? I have no idea. 
I the, the only that's thing a, I that's alchemy. That's alchemy. The only thing I can I can tell you is I over the years have learned to get out of my own way. Mm-hmm. That's it. I don't know. I don't remove yourself and just yeah. e- exist and let it come out of you. Yeah, I'm just, like I said. I'm a conduit, so I just have to get out of my own way. And I'm as I've said to you before, the music that I'm listening to, especially for those paintings, was just very abstract contemporary composers and there's a lot of dissident chords that are pushing against each other and it's very almost uncomfortable to listen to this music but what it does for me is it pushes out any thoughts in my head Mm -hmm. I I cannot even begin to have this you know little conversation in my head so you know, it, yeah, it makes you more of a pure channel. Yeah, it just empties me out, and so that I'm able to, to really just be in the moment with the paintings. But like, and I was thinking about this when we were editing, um, the you know the pages that I wrote. But you have your synesthesia. Yeah. So. So you've got this inherent sort of soundscape going on that is pulsating with the color you know you're sort of this vibrant electrified being because you're hearing sound you're you're paying attention with the color and then you're kind of like then you're putting this music on to sort of block it out so you can just I'm blocking out my thoughts yeah you're blocking out your thoughts but what's going on with the sound like it's is it just like a tone, you know, or no, it's it's. Um, I don't. Even, I have to look up what I listen to, but um, it's not top of my head right now. But in your mind, though, this in my mind, yeah. in my mind, these notes are canceling each other out, creating space. Okay. Um, so that, and they're also canceling out any thoughts that I might have, like, what am I going to have for lunch? Or yeah. did I pay my electric bill this month? You know, yeah. all those little wandering thoughts, right? Yeah. It shuts all that out. It 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 literally creates almost like this this barrier um, to the outside world. These these sounds do, and because they are dissident sounds, and they are, as I'm you know pushing a red against a blue against a green on a canvas, mm-hmm. it's very similar. Oh, that's so interesting. It's very, very similar because I'm oh. pushing these colors that against each other in the same similar way that the sounds, the, the notes are being pushed against each other. Wow. So I'm very particular about certain types of music or certain pieces of music that I listen to while working on certain paintings. Mm-hmm. And for instance, the, the kind of more monochromatic paintings of the uh, Reach into the Silence was much more... I, I was listening to a lot of Steve Reich, uh-huh. you know, and that repetitive, 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 um, yeah. because I have multiple tones of grays going in there, and they're just crossing lines, and they're repetitive. Uh-huh. So it put me into that mindset. Yeah. Well, when I was sort of soaking up the neither flesh nor fleshless paintings, um, 
I made some notes and I, I wrote them down because I wanted to refer to them and stuff. And some of them, I mean, talking about time, and I know that you know you've spent a lot of time reading and contemplating uh, quantum physics and you know Einstein's relativity and you know ongoing things that mm -hmm. you've read and, and thought about. But some of those paintings had they were like from the past. Some of them for me were like a premonition of the future. Mm. Some of them captured like this miracle moment. Um, those have, those just seem to just, had to have just happened. You can't control that. Mm -mm. I right? can't. No. No, I, I, I mean, they just, they did like just. How, how can you control time? You can't. You can't. And they did just happen. I made choices of colors. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's not I'm, about luck, you know. No, no. Something. Well, it's it's a it's an accumulation of life's experiences that I can take into that moment mm -hmm. to allow that moment to just happen. There's no shortcuts to get there. Yeah. Um, but you know, then I so I I'm very much in the moment and I make gestural paint strokes and then I have to let it dry. And then I come back and then I respond to that. So that the first brush strokes are very subconscious. But then when I, as I return back to it, I'm consciously aware of what the, my subconscious was at that moment that I then consciously begin to have a dialogue with, mm -hmm. visual dialogue. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, so I want to go back for a second and talk about T.S. Eliot because um, in my research, you know, the four quartets, mm -hmm. at least Burton Norton, which he took the three, stanzas from he he was inspired by Beethoven's quartet so mm -hmm. that one Bert Morton definitely <clears throat> has a meter it, it has a, a rhythm to it and and when you listen to whoever you listen to um, if you want to listen to somebody read it yeah. read it mm -hmm. you, you really get the sense of that um, so my my question to you is that um, The, like, that's one aspect. You're also deeply rooted in Eastern philosophy and um, music and read different texts and things like that. And T.S. Eliot did as well. Mm -hmm. He spent time at Harvard and he studied... Um, Sanskrit. Sanskrit. And, and you've been known in your paintings to create these sort of formations that are indeed could be Sanskrit, you know, could be, mm -hmm. or could be some that came out, you know, and we've talked about this before. So, so do you, do you think some of that sort of came out as well, the Eastern? Sure, I think, so. yeah, I mean, I, it's an accumulation of my entire life. I, yeah. I, you can't control. I can't control that. No, it's not that I, I don't have some sort of filter on there that says, you know. You didn't, you didn't plan it. I mean, I asked you that question, like, how much does each title inform the painting? And you're like, just a title. That it's, there's nothing more than that. Well, it's a title that informs me reaching to the silence. So then I think about what is silence? What color is silence? Uh -huh. You know, they're muted colors, obviously. 
Yeah. But then, I, as I began really investigating that further, I thought, well, but if I have bright colors on the surface, then the silence is inside, which is what you're supposed to reach into. Uh-huh. You know, so the, the titles did instruct, they guided me on color choices. Mm. But yeah, it's, it's complicated, you know, and these paintings, they, they, they're not your, you know, they're not figurative works. They're not, um, they're not your normal thing. Well, they're, they're somewhat symbolic for each person and, you know, what they will experience within it, I think. Hopefully. I think. But, so, I mean, it's, it's pretty overwhelming because you have yourself, this individual, and then you have the task of your studio and <clears throat> making paintings and creating paintings and why are you making these paintings and <laughs> never ask why and, and <laughs> just doing it you've been making art you know since you were a child yeah you know it's something that you have to do and um and so you know so you have that and then you have the physicality of the paintings and then you have an exhibition and then you have all of these sort of theory or conversation about the work and about you and then you have that whole other after fact experience of the museum and and the people so it's like it's so larger than life mm -hmm. and then you have these paintings that are not just merely illustrations they're they're art they're mm -hmm. evidence of your life and mm -hmm. your time and so the subtitle of of the exhibition is strangers in time it it came about and um do you have anything to say about that with within the work? Oh, strangers in time. Well, I think that. <clears throat> I mean, we're all strangers of time. We are all that, you know. And for me, it's it's thinking about the history of the Bobolo Museum, the history of Venice. Yeah. Um, and then I pop in. Yeah. And now I'm making my presence uh, seen and felt at this. Um, building the Bobolo that was built in 14 something yeah um, and so yeah I'm a stranger in time mm -hmm. you know because the building itself is time mm -hmm. so I'm a stranger in time in this place in this place for sure and the history of of, of the city and and um, so that's what that's what struck me about it yeah I felt I felt like that was it mm -hmm. and you know and that it, Here's this Tintoretto painting, and um, from fourteen, late fourteen hundreds or early fifteen hundreds, and and here I am, you know, and and it's a strange idea that my work is going to be hanging, you know, in front of his, and I think it's perfect. It is in a very strange way, and um, you know, he was quite the rebel. And Titian was the, you know, the leader of the time, and um, his family saw that he had real talent, so they, they hired Titian for him to go and study with him, and very, very quickly Titian saw he was very gifted and kicked him out. Oh, wow. And he chose not to <clears throat> make these refined paintings like Titian. Uh -huh. 
Um, instead, he wanted his paintings to be very rough and figurative and very, uh, very much about emotion. And they are. Yeah. Sure. And so, yeah, it's interesting. You yeah. Know, I don't yeah. want to go into his whole history, yeah. but um, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, thank for, you. for talking about this um, incredible project and exhibition that will open next spring from April to November. Yeah, a long run. And um, book your tickets. <laughs> book your ticket. I like that. Let me, and we're going to have some closing music now. Back to Ravi Shankar and Philip Glass. <laughs>